Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you, and we are in Acts chapter 20. And one of the most precious texts in the Scriptures as we get to see Paul's departing words um, to those that he spent almost three years with, dear friends. And so, looking forward to diving into that with you. Acts chapter 20, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there, because I would like for us to read, again, the text out loud together. Um, Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible at the end of a row near you, so just kind of poke your neighbor on the shoulder, and uh, they would be happy to give that to you. And if you don't own a Bible, we have giveaway Bibles in the coffee room up there that we would love for you to take as our gift to you. So we're going to read uh, verses 17 through 35, Acts 20, 17 through 35. And so I will begin us, and you read out loud with me. Okay, you ready? Can you do this? Okay, I think you can. <laughs> Even if you can't, give it a shot. Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than receive. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that this is Your holy Word. And I ask that You would use it as You said You would to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that, God, You would take it from mere, merely transferring over and out of the mouth, but You would imprint it on the minds and deepen it in the heart that we might not sin against You. I ask, O oh God, that Your Word would grow in its preciousness, that in these very moments, that You, by Your Holy Spirit, would, through Your Word, revive our soul. You would make wise the simple. You would enlighten the eyes. You would rejoice our hearts. Lord, that You would help us to see Your Word as pure and true and satisfying. And, O oh Father, I pray that today, by Your Word, You would warn us and You would also show us the great reward of pursuing You with all of our lives. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and our mouths and the meditation of my heart and our hearts be pleasing in Your sight. Because You are our rock, our Redeemer, steadfast and sure. Lord, may You get all the praise and the glory. We pray this in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm really glad to be with you. And last night I was a part of uh, a wedding of one of our members, uh, Kimberly Spence, now Kimberly Spence Jensen, married Lee, who will be kind of visiting us a little bit later. Um, Not today, but like in the future, you know. Um, Not like some special guest appearance. That's how I made it sound. Um, Anyway, the wedding was a blast. It was... As weddings should be. It was a time to really focus in on God and this creation of marriage. And it was also a time just to celebrate Him and this couple. And so it was filled both with moments of tears and moments of partying and moments of feasting over great food. It was wonderful. But I get the special privilege as the pastor who is officiating it to be back there before the wedding starts with the groom and usually with the father of the groom. And it's in that moment when you have some really special, precious times. When that dad looks at his son right before he goes out. And sometimes, it doesn't always happen this way, sometimes it's happened before. But it was special to see this daddy look at his son in his eyes. And through tears, just tell him how proud he was of him. And just tell him how thankful he was for his life. And then give him words of encouragement to stay true to what he had known. Give him words of warning to not deviate from the God that he loves. And words of instruction on how to draw near to his bride and to love her. All of that before we go out. And it just reminds me that farewell words, these kind of departing words, they are weighty words. When you have significant life change, when you go off to college, maybe you had a mentor, maybe you had someone who really um, was special to you. It could be a parent, it could be a, a youth leader, it could just be someone that you worked with. As you went off to college, maybe somebody pulled you aside and spoke some words to you. 
Words of transition. Words of importance. And those are important words. Just as they are when you're getting ready to make such a major life change as to get married. Important words are spoken when they are departing or transition words. And what we have here from Paul are departing words of supreme importance because he says he will never see this church again. And so I want to know, I want to know what was most important to his life. When I want to know that, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look to this message that he gives to these people that he loves so much. Because these departing words are stand up and take notice kind of words. And so what we have in Acts 20 is he gives in different scenarios multiple kind of farewell addresses. But this one we get in Acts chapter 20. What we read together, we actually get a bulk of his words rather than just the effect of his words. So where we're headed today is we're going to go to the beginning of the chapter to see a few scenarios where he said some goodbyes to different churches and different regions. And then what we hope to do at that point is to then look at this address to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And it'll be a service, possibly a glimpse or a window into the potential content of what he maybe said as he was departing from multiple groups. But hopefully what we will see is we will stand up and take notice that God has a word for us today. He has a word for us today. A word to draw near to Him. And so, at the beginning, I want to dive into the stories of Acts 20. These true scenarios of where Paul is leaving. And then we will see kind of three points coming out of his final message to the Ephesian elders. I'll hold those back for now, but right now we're going to look at Acts chapter 20, just to see multiple times when he is saying goodbye to dear friends. Acts chapter 20, verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 is his time in Ephesus. And at the end of Acts chapter 19... There was an influential businessman in the city of Ephesus. His role was a silversmith. His name was Demetrius. And he was one as a silversmith who would make literal statues of the goddess Artemis, which, of course, was a lucrative business because Artemis was worshipped primarily in Ephesus. People would travel from all over to get to this city to have worship ceremonies around Artemis. So you can imagine, like, if you go to Disney World, you know, you buy all the trinkets of Mickey Mouse or, you know, the uh, Frozen and all whatever you're looking for. All of a sudden, if you cut all of that out... And all of a sudden, Disney was in jeopardy. All of these vendors would be in an uproar. My economic stability is going to be pulled out from underneath me. Well, that's what this guy was doing. Except it had a massive religious overtone. Might at Disney World, but that's a different story. So, this significant imprint in the, the Ephesian economy was being pulled out. And it was being pulled out because Paul was saying, these little statues, big si- whatever size they were, They were not really God, but they were just statues made with hands. And he was saying, that's not true. 
And of course he was saying it was not true because he believed it, but also because his business was in jeopardy. And it stirred what was said in the Scriptures, not such a little uproar. <laughs> what we know is all of a sudden a bunch of people got really angry and they run into a theater. A theater that held, we're not talking like, you know, the North Hills Theater. We're talking about an amphitheater that holds about 12,000 people. We don't know how many ran into this theater, but it held a lot. So we're talking about a major uproar of people running into the theater and raising Cain, and they're basically chanting for over two hours. Artemis is the goddess of the Ephesians. Just chanting over and over. Just thinking about that just sends a sense of spiritual brokenness kind of chills over my heart. People giving their lives two hours of chanting to something that would never deliver and that they know now in this very moment was false. But they didn't know it then. And so this uproar came. And Paul wanted to go in and to defend the gospel and his friends wisely held him back because he probably would have been killed. We don't know, but he was held back. And then eventually, someone stood up, calmed the crowd, the uproar ceased, and now we're in Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, the followers of, Ephes- and the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. He gathers them all together, and he encourages them. This word encouragement is used again of what he does when he travels through the region of Macedonia. Look at verse 2. When he had gone through those regions, that's the regions of Macedonia, and had given them much encouragement, then he moved on to another. You can begin to see, he meets with the group of the Ephesian believers, and he speaks to them. And he encourages them. And then he moves on again to Macedonia. Macedonia were the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and the city of Berea. And he meets with them. And he encourages them. And then he moves on to Greece. Greece, another word for that in the Scriptures, is Achaia. And that's where Corinth was. But he constantly was moving from city to city, giving these farewell addresses, so to speak. And the result was encouragement. Encouragement in the Scriptures is both, and context really only tells us which one was the emphasis, encouragement is exhortation, Giving of commands, instructing, admonishing. That's a slice of encouragement. You might not find that very encouraging, but that's how the Bible uses the word. And it's also comfort. Coming alongside. Building up. And so this encouragement is an exhorting and a comforting encouragement. And we don't get the content of what he said. We just get the result. And so now he is, in the, he is in Greece, focusing in on Corinth in verse 3. And there he spent three months, and yet once again the Jews in that city strike up a plot to try to kill him, and now he has to make a decision to leave. And so he's ready to set sail for Syria. Syria was where Antioch was. It was his sending church. It was the church that he had been sent out by. And so he was going to set sail for there in hopes to eventually get to Jerusalem. We know that from Acts chapter 19, verse 21, where he says the goal was to get to Jerusalem and then eventually go to Rome. Why would he go to Jerusalem? 
Where it also explains while he was traveling to all these cities, he was not only saying goodbye, but he was making a collection of money for the poor, the poor believers in Jerusalem. We read about this in 2 Corinthians. Both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians were written right here in this time. Paul wrote them from Ephesus. And now he's going back through this region, which is kind of Turkey and around through Greece. It'd be like for you. Turkey and around through Greece. He travels around this area collecting money for the poor. And then he wants quickly to get back to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost and hopes to get that money to them. Now here's interesting. Look at the text with me. But he decided to return through Macedonia. Why did he do that? Well, we have right after that a list of names. People from Berea, people from Thessalonica, people from Derby, and those from the general region of Asia. And it gives this list of people. And then these people are sent ahead to Troas, which is just a little bit north of Ephesus. But Paul goes to Philippi. What in the world is happening? Well, Paul thought it wise, as we read in 2 Corinthians, to have a bunch of official representatives to join him for two reasons. One, for safety, to protect the money that he had collected. And two, in order that he would be above board with the finances that he had. That he would be able to say, these are all the different representatives from these cities that have given money to be a blessing to you. And they have been with me through this journey to say, I have handled this money rightly. And to testify how much these churches love you and care for you. And so they went ahead to Troas. Paul made a final trip to Philippi to try to gather in some funds. And it even says in 2 Corinthians that Macedonia was a poor region that even though they didn't have much, they stood out for their generosity. They not only gave what was asked, they gave above and beyond that in order to be a blessing to these poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. This is what we are stepping into when we're at the beginning of Acts 20. And so Paul, he leaves Philippi, and in five days, he finally gets to Troas, and he's there for seven days. Now, a very interesting story happens while he's in Troas. Guy's a man named Eutychus. I've got this little kid's book. It's entitled Sleepy, Sleepy Eutychus. Eutychus. His name, Eutychus, it actually means lucky or fortunate. This is almost, this is, I think, God humor. God is, he's a happy God, okay? And what we have here is... Eutychus being the highlight of this story. So Paul now gathers the believers. Once again, another farewell address to the people in Troas. He gathers them there, and Luke is there recording it. And Paul, it says in verse 7, talked with them and intended to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech. That's what you give me a hard time for. (laughs) Prolonging the sermon. He prolonged his conversation with these people that he loved dearly. But it lasted till midnight. And then, it throws in some weird comment. I think it was weird until I found out kind of why it was there. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> thanks for the little detail. Why didn't you tell me about curtains or, you know, the dirt floor or something? No. Why the lamps? Because lamps burn, they give off smoke, and it probably explains why Eutychus was making a beeline for the window. Verse 9. Young man named Eutychus, Mr. Lucky himself, was sitting on the window, and he was so enthralled with what Paul said, he fell asleep. <laughs> And Paul still talked longer. <laughs> Staring at the sleepy guy, I'm going to keep plugging forward. <laughs> You're laughing because you've experienced this in your own life <laughs> and in mine. And then he says, all of a sudden, Mr. Lucky falls asleep and falls out the window and plummets three stories to his death. <laughs> Literally, he died. Now, Paul... Verse 10, Paul bent down, went down, bent down, picked him up in his arms, and he says, don't be alarmed. Now, that's a weird statement for looking at someone who is just dead. But then he says, for his life is in him. Paul was used miraculously by God to see this man raised from the dead. And now, they go back up and they break bread together. This is... Normally, the breaking of bread, it's shown in Acts 2, it's shown at the beginning of this passage. The breaking of bread is sitting down for a meal, but it's also observing what we will do after the sermon today, the Lord's Supper. A time of recalling Jesus' death and resurrection and our need for Him. And so now, I guarantee you, they were not as sleepy. All of a sudden, they're up in this room and Paul keeps going. And ironically... And uniquely, we don't get the content of what he said. But what we do is we get the result. And it says, verse 12, And they took the youth away alive and were no little comforted because they had experienced the power of God in a miraculous way and they had been encouraged by Paul's words. And so now Paul begins to travel. And as he begins to travel, trying to make his way to Jerusalem, he finds his way to Miletus. He didn't want to stop in Ephesus because he had already stopped there. He didn't want to get bogged down. He wanted to take this offering and get it to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which is what it says in verse 16. And now we have what we read. Verse 17 and following is Paul's farewell words to the Ephesian elders. Farewell words to the Ephesian elders. And as we said at the beginning, farewell words, we should stand up and take notice. And I want you to think, how does God want to shape your life, my life, as we see how Paul was seeking to shape theirs? God has an intention for you this very morning, in this very moment, to shape your life. What would that look like? Well, we're going to see it in three quick points. That we see a Savior worth following, a warning worth heeding, and a generous word-built life worth living. Look at where Paul begins. And this probably is a little insight into what all of these different moments in Acts 20. They had maybe portions of these. They maybe had all of this. They maybe had a little bit more. But let's stand up and take notice of these final words. The Ephesian church was a church that Paul spent three years in. 
These are not just casual acquaintances. This, these are men that he labored alongside. These Ephesian elders, they're elders, which means they were tasked as the leaders of the church, which means he had especially spent more time with them, pouring into them, equipping them, so that when he was ready to leave, they could leave the church. So these were dear, dear friends. Three years of their life spent together, laboring alongside one another. And how does Paul begin? He begins by stating his life as an example. But if you look at it closely, you begin to see how much he talks about God. And his life is only meant to be an example to the degree that he says, I have lived this life because I have a Savior who is worth following. I have lived this sacrificial life. I don't count my life of value. I have lived a life of love because Jesus is more valuable than anything else. And so let's look at it together. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Please, 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 when you hear the phrase, serving the Lord, do not hear, God is deficient and needs you to make up for that. What you should hear when we think about serving the Lord is that you are doing what God requires. You are living your life for Him. It's an expression of giving your life for the purposes of God. Not a declaration of a God who is needy and needs us to make up for His deficiency. And so when we serve the Lord, we serve Him with gladness. That's Psalm 100. Here Paul says he serves with humility. And I believe those are connected. A humble, loving person is going to be that one who serves with the most gladness of heart. What is this humility phrase? He is living for the purposes of God, not for praise, not for status, not for money, but for love. That's humility. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. That is love. That is humility. Not seeking praise or status or money. But those things weren't even here. It was self-forgetfulness. It was, how can I position my life in such a way that I get God to as many people as possible? It was a declaration of the beauty and importance of God. And it says that He did it with tears. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller. And he began to explain how some people have a misunderstanding regarding what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. Sometimes it's portrayed as your life will be happier. And I do believe it will be happier, but I also believe, as he said, it will be more tearful. Because what happens in the human heart when the hard heart is made a soft heart? There are more feelings there. More nerve endings exposed. More compassion for your neighbor. More brokenness over sin. A deeper depth of love because you understand a love being given to you like you've never understood. Paul lived his life as a life serving the Lord with gladness, serving the Lord with humility, but a life with tears. 
It says later on in the text that he admonished with tears. Just a brokenness. Not a superiority. Not get your act together, would you? You're getting on my nerves. A sense of, please, you're killing yourself. You're destroying your life and your family. Please, turn away from sin and turn to a God who is most beautiful. Friends, real change happens when God gets bigger, not when you get more commands. Real change happens when Jesus' value begins to leap off the page at you. And that is where Paul begins. He is as much not just about giving them some words as he is hopefully giving them a word of change. And change and the sustenance of this church will hinge upon how this church sees Jesus as worth pursuing. He is a Savior worth following. Look at what he says in verse 20. How I did not shrink. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I didn't hold back any truth. I gave it to you. And I taught you. I taught you in public. I even went from house to house. And I testified that this gospel is a gospel for all peoples. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles. It's a gospel for all peoples. And it's a good news that says anyone can be changed. But it comes through two things. It comes through repentance that's turning your back on sin. And it comes from pursuing Jesus in faith. That's the gospel. It is the gospel of repentance and faith. Repentance towards God. Oh God, I have grieved you. I've sinned against you. And faith is... I need you to change me. I trust you with my life. This is the gospel message. And then he continues on in verse 22. And he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm constrained by the Spirit. This is a man who was just gripped by the Spirit of God, was sensitive to his leadings. And he didn't know fully what was going to happen except that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that there would be sure enough imprisonment. And sure enough, affliction. Would you go? Paul knew that that's what the calling of God had upon his life. How in the world would he go? How would he run his life headlong into a buzzsaw of attack and threats and opposition and mockery and eventual death? How would he do that? Verse 24 tells us how. He had a superior Savior. More than his life, Jesus was of most value. Verse 24 says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry, the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, that God would give us this kind of clinging to His purposes. That we are just so gripped by wanting to know Him and to please Him that our life, our possessions, our fame, our name would be a distant thought. And even more than that, of what He says, no value at all. Say that in a world that prizes self-esteem above everything else. 
You're not of any value. Jesus is of supreme value. You're able to say that and yet also say, in Christ, you're valuable to Him. But when it comes to living your life, He is trying to rip away your grip on insecurity. Rip away your grip on, I just need, I need affirmation. I just need money. I just need someone to tell me this or that. And He is saying, God has said it all. He has said how much He loves you. He has said how secure you are in Him. It's called the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ could not scream any louder that you are loved, that you are secure, that you are valuable, that you are His, that you are a sinner, yes. You are a beloved child, yes. So that then as you do your self-talk, you can say, in Christ, yes, I'm valuable, but I don't have to count my life as a value. I can say, Jesus is most precious. And you can run and do the hard thing of love. Whatever that looks like. And one day, it will be really hard. Other days, it will not be. But Paul said, Oh dear friends, as you lead this church... Look to the Savior who is worth giving your life for. He is of most value. Paul said this multiple places. We see it in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8 of Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, and here's the phrase, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might just have more of Jesus. That God would use this day in our lives to grip the heart and to make knowing Jesus what is most important deep down in the depths. And so friends, when changes come, when changes come to our life like the change of season from spring to summer, when changes come like we have a pastor who is going to be leaving TCC here in the next week or so, ironically, Pastor Paul is leaving the TCC elders while, past, while Apostle Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. When there are changes in your life, when there are changes in job, when there are changes in leadership or a loss of those that you love dearly, I guarantee you, God is meaning to shake you, to make you ask, what and who? is most valuable. It's meant to recenter us all to say knowing Christ is the greatest pursuit I could have in my life. But Paul didn't stop there. Paul said that there is a warning worth heeding. There is a warning worth heeding. My little boy Justice, I love him dearly. He makes me smile Sometimes just looking at him. Not because he's funny looking, but just because he's sweet. I love him. There was one moment when I got frustrated with him. That's, that's a kind word for being angry, you know. We kind of gloss it over with frustration. No, I was angry. Deep down, it was just a mild anger. It wasn't like yelling or anything. Here's what I saw. Justice, again, he has an issue with food. We do feed the boy, I promise you. But 
he was at the kitchen and he was just, Mercy said, can I have something to eat? And he immediately, can I have something to eat? <laughs> and Elijah comes over and he was like, okay, what are we eating? What can I, I, I would love this on my burger or whatnot. And just like, can I have that on my burger? It was just like, he is a parent and he was just constantly asking everything that everybody else said in the room. He just wanted that, that, that. And finally, I said, son, stop eating food. That was not one of my more shining moments as a parent. I didn't mean that I didn't want him to eat food ever again. I was just like, stop being obsessed with this food. And and the words didn't come out. You might have had some of those moments before. That is a warning not worth heeding. (laughs) My son needs to eat. But when Paul had spent three years with these dear friends, and he looks at them and he says, I will never see you again. And then he says, be on the alert, be careful and pay attention. That's a warning worth heeding. And this is what he does. This is what he does. He says, verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Which means I have clearly told you the truth. I've told you the gospel. And now you must do something with it. Friends, Many times when God takes leaders away or spiritual mentors away in your life, it is so that there would be greater ownership in your heart. And this is exactly what is happening here. He is saying, I have given you everything that you need for life and godliness. I have pointed you to the word of grace. But I'm going to go. And I'm innocent of your blood. You're responsible to take what has been given to you and use it wisely. And so then we begin to hear these declarations of ownership. And I believe this is for every single person in this church. That when we have transitions, transition into the summer. We have transition, transition into this community. We have transitions and Pastor Paul is leaving. It is a declaration to every single person of this family to say, what am I going to do with the gospel that God has given me? What am I going to do with it? How am I going to serve? How am I going to grow in deeper in knowledge of God? How am I going to love And Paul begins to say, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He shared with them the whole of the Scriptures. Verse 28, he now gives this command to the Ephesian elders. And he says, pay careful attention. Pay careful attention. Warning, heed this. Pay careful attention. Pay careful attention to yourself. And also to all of the flock of God, the sheep of God. And who are they? It's the one that Jesus died for. It says, which He obtained with His own blood. It's the church. The pastors of the church, their first way of shepherding the church is personal holiness. Look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. Draw near to God. Because pastors, 
will be held accountable to a greater degree for the souls of those under their care. And so please, church, please pray for your pastors. Pray for them. They're not better than you. They're in this with you. But they need your support in prayer. Because only God is going to be the one that can give encouragement that is deep and lasting and joy that is deep and lasting and purity and discipline and an eagerness for the Scriptures and a love for people and a hunger to get the Gospel to the lost. Only God can work that. But in the church, it's not only the pastors who pastor. Every single person in the church is meant to shepherd and care for the church. And so this is just a microcosm of look at your own heart and pastors care for the flock of God because an attack is coming. And this is not just for them. It is for now. Fierce wolves. And I'm not talking about animals. You will not know them when they come in. They will not have fangs and they will not have an unusual amount of hair. This attack is a spiritual attack that comes because the devil masquerades like an angel of light. He comes in as a deceiver. But false teaching will be a threat to our souls. Diminishing of the glory of God will be a threat to our hearts. A callousness towards sin. An indifference to not sharing the gospel. And not loving our neighbors. Something is going to come in. The teaching will be perverted. And he says, it won't spare the flock. It will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things and draw away followers. And so, there's a warning worth heeding. That there's a spiritual battle going on. That we must do our part. Pastors fighting on the front lines, equipping you to fight on the front lines. Together as a church family. Drawing near to God. Being able to identify evil and falsehood. And living lives of faith. Which is how he ends. It is living a generous word built life. And that generous word built life is worth living. He then says in verse 31 Therefore, be on the alert, remembering for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I shared the good news with you through tears. And now I commend you to God. You see this? He is entrusting these people to the Holy Spirit. Parents, yes, you have responsibility to instruct and to care for. But ultimately, there is an entrusting of your children to God. And eventually one day that will mean the letting them go. 
that's what it means constantly in, as we seek to care for people in the church. We pour in, we pour in, we pour in, and then we must trust the Spirit of God with them. Let them go. Free them up to love on others. And this is what Paul did. He trusted the Spirit of God because he knew the Spirit of God dwelt in the Word of God. It was the Word of His grace. And friends, many of us, not even just in this church, but in Christianity in general, I'm speaking of, have backed off of the importance of the Word. Here's an article I read. From Christianity Today, this man was not advocating this. He was stating that this is something that is happening in the world today. The article is entitled, Yawning at the Word. And in just a few hundred words, he begins to capture the tragedy of a church growing increasingly impatient with the Word of God. And here's the attitude he begins to describe that he sees in Christianity today. Quote, It is well and good for the preacher to base his sermon on the Bible, but he better get to something relevant pretty quickly or we start mentally to check out. Don't spend a lot of time in the Bible, we tell our preachers, but be sure to get to personal illustrations, examples from daily life, and most importantly, an application that we can use. Al Mohler states this, a Christian leader today. He says, How can so many of today's churches demonstrate what can only be described as an impatience with the Word of God? The biblical formula is clear. The neglect of the Word can only lead to disaster, disobedience, and death. God rescues His church from error, preserves His church in truth, and propels His church in witness only by His Word, not by congregational self-study. In the end, an impatience with the Word of God can be explained only by an impatience with God. We all, both individually and congregationally, neglect God's Word to our ruin. When He left the church, He said, I give you to God, and I give you the Word of His grace. Let that build you up. Friends, I cry because I know what it's like personally to neglect the Word and I've seen the ramifications of the neglect of the Word in the lives of people I love dearly. May we put a stake in the ground. May we put a stake in the ground and stand up and say, I don't need praise from men. I don't need possessions. What I need is more of God. And I need to give him away to my dying neighbor. Give him away to this community. Give him away to this precious church. And he said, when the Word of God grips you, it'll build you up like a great building. It'll make you strong. And it'll make you generous. Because Paul says, I didn't hold tight to silver or gold. I didn't even ask you to support me. I work so that I could be supported on my own, so that you would not call me greedy. Although he says in other places it's perfectly fine to pay the leaders of the church. And he says, money is not the point. God is the point. And when you grip hold tightly of God's Word, generosity overflows. Because Jesus has clearly stated this, it is a happier, more fulfilling, blessed thing to give away your things 
than to receive. It means there needs to be receivers, but it means that we need to look for, the, it says in the text, the weak, the poor, the fragile, the broken. And we need to give sacrificially and generously. That's not just for some. That's for every single believer that calls them a follower of Jesus. It is a sacrifice with finances. Because you are gripped by God, you are not gripped by money. And you see people in their need. And you support this church and you support the work of the hurting in your community. It's sacrifice. But I promise you, there's a Savior worth following. And this is a warning worth heeding. And a generous word-built life is worth living. Let's pray. Father, I need you. And so do these dear friends. We need you as a church family. And this season of change, this losing of a dear pastor and Paul, it's also a sending out. As he is being called to something, we are being called to something. We are being called to Jesus and being called to look at our lives and pay careful attention to our hearts and to take ownership. This is not just an event. This is not just a club. This is a people living and breathing. It's a community. It's a family that you desire to use in a powerful way by the power of the Gospel and your Word to love this city and beyond. And so, oh God, I pray, knit us together. Strengthen us as leaders. Equip us, I pray. Encourage us. May we not yawn at the Word, but be built up by it. Oh, Father, thank You for loving us today. May we trust in You and find You as the loving and precious God that You are. Thank You for loving us today. In Jesus' name, Amen.